Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on. ABC Radio. The intervention was sprung on us without warning. With no consultation, a lot of lies were told about our communities. Pedophile rings, violence, rivers of grog and dysfunctions. Bit of self-determination we had, they took from us. The council is run from Alice Springs. A big mob of white fellows came and they run everything for us. These outsiders don't talk Walbury and don't understand or respect our culture. The Truth About the NT Intervention, a new publication from the Intervention Rollback Action Group and Centering Culture and Community in Efforts to Address Family and Domestic Violence in Indigenous Communities. We've been saying as Aboriginal people, as Aboriginal organisations, that our community-controlled organisations, our communities have the solutions and they need to be invested in. It's so important that Aboriginal self-determination is invested in because we see so so much has failed with, you know, imposed government responses and um, investment into mainstream organisations. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. Earlier this year, an extraordinary chapter in Australian race relations quietly drew to a close with the end of the Northern Territory emergency response. In 2007, the federal government rolled out that policy, which became known as the intervention that suspended the Racial Discrimination Act, took over town camps with compulsory leases, stopped the community-controlled permit system, introduced welfare quarantining and the basics card, sent in the army and introduced star chamber powers for the police. The policy was continued for a further 10 years under the Stronger Futures legislation introduced by Labor under Minister Jenny Macklin. Throughout this period, community advocates across the Northern Territory have spoken out about these policies and their negative impacts on their lives. As the recent publication by the Intervention Rollback Action Group in Mbantua, Alice Springs, The truth about the NT intervention notes that even though the Stronger Futures legislation has now been sunsetted, many of its provisions remain in other pieces of legislation. And as Auntie Elaine Peckham has said, just because the intervention is finishing, it's still here, the damage is done. To mark this continuing protest against the policies of the intervention, we are revisiting some of those strong voices. These community elders warned that the policy was not protecting women and children, but instead had no impact on school attendance, increased child removal and incarceration rates, particularly for juveniles, increased suicide rates, and led to an undermining of community-led responses. I think the first thing that I need to talk about is uh, when they brought the intervention to us, um, we were flooded with army, with the police, and with those social Gadia workers who actually came along and um, gave us what we needed to do. And watching the things happening, there were things happening, and every time we were tight, we were tight down because we could not move a muscle, we could not do a thing about all these things that, that the intervention brought to our attention. So really... To us, it was it was frightening for the whole community to have these Korea, the army, the police there at the same time. And also, they've also built $7 million police station. $7 million police station. That money could have gone to our community, our needs, to our children, to our programs, that we needed so badly, so badly. And that seven million was built for Korea. And what's for us? What they given us? They given us seven million dollars a police station. And that money, it's not I think it's not well rusted to Korea, to us especially, and um, left us with emptiness and sadness and trauma. We as a community right across the Central Australia, as well as to the top end, Queensland, South Australia, 
we would like to say this, and I would like to say this on behalf of my community, as well as many other communities. We want to say, we want justice. We do not want guns to be worn in right across the Central Australia WA top end. We do not want guns because it terrifies us because we don't know who's coming around that corner. We don't know. And that's why we want justice and we do not want guns to be worn. Thank you, everyone. And hope we, we as Yapa, you know, Korea's out there, they should listen to us. We always talk about young people and we talk to them and to be steady, 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 because of what is happening right now, you know, in Central Australia, now it's ringing in the mall. To our young people, we say to them, look, be calm. The day that that young fellow was taken away, everybody wanted to burn the police station. And we were we were, we were frightened ourselves because we were, we were, no, 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 that's not going to happen. Just be calm. Let it go. So we're teaching our people, our young men and girls, to respect our culture and to respect Korea's culture, even though they don't, you know, they don't do it the other way. But we do that because we feel that we don't want to be looked at. Yapa always are mad. You know, they're crazy. They don't listen. They want to wreck everything. No. That night was a very special night. Everybody was calm. They wanted to burn that station, police station. They wanted to burn it. But uh, some of our elders was there. Harry Nelson, Eddie Robertson, and a few others were there. And uh, we, we told them, no, let it go. So we want to control our community. The intervention took our rights, they left us empty because um, they think it's best that to, you give away your culture and you know, don't worry about it. No, that's not true. God has given us Chokorupa. When I say Chokorupa, dreaming, glory. He's given that to us, and we want to maintain it, not to lose it, but to keep it for our children's children, to keep it strong so that we can continue teaching, learning the country and the Chukurpa. That's what we want to do. So we want our rights back. We want to be able to control our community in our way. My name's Elaine. As you all well know, I, I grew up in Alice Springs in the early 50s and the struggles that we've been going through for many years with the intervention. And I was actually out on my homeland in 2007 when the intervention was put upon us. And from that day on, I have not stopped speaking out about what the, how devastating the intervention had done to us and where we are today still speaking out about it. And it just happened that day when I came into town I didn't know about the intervention. I hadn't even heard on the radio at home. I went around to my son's place and I was looking after one of my grandchildren while my son was going out bush. And he said, he came home that afternoon. He says, Mummy, he said to me, you better go down and check about your settlement payments. And I said, my son, Farron, I'm doing everything right. I'm getting my rent taken out of my pension and things like that. And he said, no, Mum. Things are changing. The government has changed all that now. And I said, okay, I will do that. I said, I'll go down tomorrow. And on that day, going down to Centrelink, changed my, not change, but mainly stop and think, is this really happening to us? Being in there in that room at Centrelink and um, looking around and seeing all our people standing up in the line like a, all of that cattle like you look at on when you're out on the station going for a drink of water. Yeah, I just couldn't believe that this is happening. That's how it came about. So I had my interview with them that day and I they had this computer set up in language and I said, you could take that away. I said, I can speak English very well. I went to school and got my education. Well, I if you've heard, we have got a strong grandmother's group of Central Australia. We have been working very hard. We don't get any government support. It's all voluntary work that we're doing, helping those kids on the street and at least having time to be able to say and talk to them and hear what they've got to say. But with the intervention, when we had to do all the, the workshops on 
how do we see it and how, how it affected us, especially people out on those communities. A lot of our people have never had the chance to have an education like us in, in our Springs. And out of that, I uh, called it my Central Australian Strong Winter Line. I did all my training in Canberra because I wanted to know about the legality of all that before I can um, actually set myself up. I set myself up at the younger generation to come behind us and let's be that voice. So I did, and uh, first I started out doing the Fred Hollows Foundation, and then I did the National One Oxfam. And that gave me the ability or the strength to say, yes, we still have our voices. Nothing has taken that away from us. No matter what they do or how they do it, our voices are there, still there. Yeah, and even now with the grandmothers we've set up, we want to feel that we're there for all of the children out on the street and stop getting them from getting hurt. Want them to have a life that they can have children of their own and be for their own children and not go through what we had done with older ones with the intervention. I was on one of the communities when the intervention came through during that time, watching, and it came right in, in front of me. And I was there when the first wave of police, army, no force arrived, and I saw it all happen. I even went and offered my assistance to try and help, which that then we were all not sure what the good thing was going to be coming out of this intervention. People thought it was time to build our communities and make it stronger and, and as a prosper a future for our people. That's what everyone was all excited about in our communities, watching everything coming onto land. But then uh, we started off uh, helping out and I stood there in between the people in the community and the government or the intervention and did a interpreter service when in 2007 they came and uh, the children that we had then was well behaved and had a good discipline and health checks were done in a, a movable the hospital type um, tent that they brought in and built next to the, the community health center that was there already. So we helped them and there were checks done with the teenagers. They were all at this stage, were looking at 15 years or 16 years older kids. And there was not much or no active STs or sexual active in the communities. It was because the children were living in communities that were really well behaved and our elders had power and strength and knew what to do and how, how to look after our young people. And then I saw negative changes happening. Our elders, senior leaders, parents, and everyone had been undermined and told they were not doing their right thing their way. Everybody seemed to be in confusion that we started to be impacted by what had hit us through this intervention that came through. And people were really confusing and children could start talk back, swear back at parents and seeing unusual things happening to our children. And that was the outcome of this intervention that came through. People started to enroll, brought in and was signed in for work for the doll. CDP used to work on homelands and in communities were projects that used to run. But everybody, the government then through intervention said everybody needs to come in and sign in to what they call work for the doll. And when they came in, all our countrymen came in and said, this is my certificate, which I gained during while I was working in, in communities through the land community council and the local government and how things were going. We have been doing an apprenticeship and people said, I have a certificate, which I am a qualified plumber working here, a tradesman. Some of them were working in administration, in offices. But through intervention, they said, you won't be needing this. You need to sign up another form with the Centrelink here 
and to achieve white card, then call white card or a yellow Alka card so that you can work on work for the doll. Sign up on Centrelink and come every day to the Centrelink and sign up, and which disabled everybody. If I would have been there that time, or I would have said, I am a aircraft maintenance engineer, and I'm sure that I would have been told, no, you, you won't be needing this anymore. You need to sign this work for the doll. That's how this intervention has crippled us, and it's taken authority and, and power of our people. I want the blanket of the intervention removed so that we can have that breathing space again, so that we can be who we are, so that we can be human beings to maintain the future generation. So this is what we have been fighting for. This is why we have been fighting for. Since then, uh, when the Stronger Futures came through and I met with elders who were starting to talk about, let's try and work on this and let's try and petition the government to stop this intervention, to stop this Stronger Futures. It is just disempowering our people. It has just taken powers of our leaders. So I started working together with them and we started to form a Yoruba Nations Assembly. Yoruba Nations Assembly, which we could advocate with the government. And during that time, uh, 2006, 2015, uh, the elections were coming up and I said to myself, maybe I'll try and get a bit higher where I can start advocating with the government. So I decided to run on the 2016 election and um, I won on the platform of treaty. And that's how I got here. This is not something that I want or enjoy working, but I had to be brave to stand here, to, to come up here, not knowing where I am heading, but I, I'm just standing here to call, stop that uh, blanket of the intervention and roll back the stronger futures and the policies, the uh, colonial system of looking after, trying to stand all over us. We want to be who we are and we want to see where our people are going into. We need the government to step back and we need an apology. Today, we need an apology for what has happened. This is not an area, this is not the people we want to be. We, we can think for ourselves, we can determine for ourselves, we can create things for ourselves and we can work and understand. We would rather want to make that a pathway. Let's Palanda and Yolmo work together. Let's Palanda and Yolmo make a pathway where we both walk together alongside. We, we had our 10 year anniversary of the Northern Territory Emergency Response back in 2017. And here we are in 2020, three years under the Stronger Futures. We've got another two years and then we'll have a review of where the policies for us will take us. It's very hard to see where our youth is at the moment. I feel heartache because our youth get into trouble because there is nothing. There's no programs for them or leaders who are there. They don't have good role models because they're forever watching stuff on YouTube about how to be a gangster and all like that. It's it's very disconcerting of where our youth is heading. You just have to look at our suicide rates. You know, it's it's very hard. I was speaking to my grandmother last night on the drive back home and I asked her the question, how do you see our youth? Where do you think they're going? And she said to me that there are no role models for them. They're in this predicament of where they want to have their culture and be who they want to be and be themselves, but they are also told to just stay down there. Don't move. We'll do everything for you so you can be run amucks and just not have a future. We'll take that future for you. As the stuff on my homeland out at Chitopia, Opera itself has become the hub town. There is no funding for the 16 homelands 
to get new houses. What they're trying to do is push us into that hub town still to this day so that they can do mining. There is this whole gap between our First Nations people and our non-First Nations people, but that's not our non-First Nation people's fault. I don't blame them at all. What I blame is their government and their policies. I, I do believe in the treaty. I believe that we need to have this treaty. Constantly to my grandmother, I've said, where we are now is not a good place between First Nations people and non-First Nations people. And until Australia grows up, we're not going to get very far with our government because time for talk is over. It, it really is. There is no communication with our government who can come to the table and sit with us. You just have to look at what Vincent Lingiari went through. Look at that walk off. And where are we today? We're still there. Not much has changed since my elders' days. There might have been minor changes to our lives, but worst of all, it's changed for the worst. You know, we just had Greg Marks talk and Stephen Gray talk about statistics and what had happened and then all of these reports coming in, going into both territory government, federal government, but then these reports and commissions, reviews, they've all just probably swept past the eyes of all these parliamentarians over the years, over the last 13 years. Like Uncle Harry said, you know, we've had five prime ministers, four to five prime ministers, no one's taken any notice. Over the last 13 years, you know, from 2007, I was a very angry and emotional person around the policies and how it was affecting our mob. Not only us in the northern, in our major town centres, Alice Springs, Tennant Creek, Catherine, Darwin, and, you know, up at Nullumboy because they're the major town centres that services our communities or our homelands, but they also, our mob, travel in and out of these town centres or service centres. So, you know, when it first came out, I, all I thought was of my grandfather, you know, was my initial thought is how is he going to understand the legislation? And then knowing that he's caretaker and living out on my homeland that I got handed back in 1988, straight after the Barunga Statement was handed to Bob Hawke. I began to realise that if we're going to keep protesting, you know, you're going to have that other element in our society saying, you know, we don't need protesters or you've got an opponent that's going to feed false lies to the rest of Australia saying, you know, there's no police brutality there's no child abuse happening in our communities. Well, for a fact, we know that it's happening. We know that being part of the Royal Commission and looking at children being abused in the detention centres or in and out of home care, and we've been very diplomatic, you know. So I, I'm in a position now, you know, with the Central Land Council and also still with Tungandura Council and just speaking up on issues that affect our mob and how governments and agencies can help our mob. And, and I am a big, strong believer in constitutional change and supporting treaty because if we were added into the constitution and we had our rights to our culture, our language, our land, the intervention wouldn't have been in place and it would have, been, it would have had to have been a block. But I believe there are people out there that are willing and caring, compassionate people that are able to help and stand up for people like myself or people like our elders out in remote communities or on homelands. Even to this day, you know, we're still talking about how there's no jobs for people out there. It was all taken over by the Shire when CDP was scrapped. Our housing situation is worse than ever. And I sit, you know, as a co-chair for Aboriginal Housing NT, and we talk about housing issues all the time and trying to get better housing conditions fixed for our people. And in reality, there is no such thing as an Aboriginal person living as a nuclear family. It will never happen. It's just like when the coronavirus kicked in, you wasn't going to separate us by isolating us because that wasn't in our culture because we're family orientated and we're people of gatherings. So we were actually safer at home in our with our families than being isolated, you know, because we don't know isolation unless we've gone to jail or we sit down in hospital for a long time. So education, the statistics on education is right because 
I work as a youth worker at night and I know for a fact that a lot of our kids on the streets here in Alice Springs don't go to school. And it's pretty sad that they can adopt another culture, but yet our youth aren't educated enough to be caretakers and take over their grandfather and their grandmother's roles in their communities or out on country. And it's sad to say there are no programs or there's no support mechanisms in place for our elders and our leaders to start teaching our younger generation to become those elders and leaders in the future. So, you know, wherever I can, I stand up for what is needed and our people actually need to be recognised and our people need to be listened to because if no one listens today, who's going to listen in the future? So it's, it's the best thing to start teaching our kids or our next generation about what had happened in the past because what's going to happen in the past is going to just keep continuing until somebody gets it right and until we get the right people in Parliament. And people like our member from Nulamboy, he's doing the right thing, you know, and people are starting to talk, but we need to, might have to start listening to our member from the top end. And, you know, if you get people like Uncle Harry who says, I've been there before, I've been fighting the fight for so long, generations after generation, and yet here I am still today, living in the same community where nothing's changed. And I've got to say, you know, out of Utopia, you still have people living in tin sheds and whatever material that they can find. And I know that because I've got family out that way as well. And when you look at the current situation with the coronavirus, it was really hard on food security for our mob in our community stores because we already know with the intervention the food prices went up, so people are still buying a lot less for a high price of food, you know. So the high cost of living out in remote communities has not helped our mob close the gap on health. A lot of our mob are still suffering with diabetes, heart problem, kidney failure, the lack of identity when it comes to being somebody who belongs on on country. You know, we get so much racism in this town. We're we're the biggest high-populated police town in little alone Australia, but, you know, in in the Territory. And after what happened last year with Kumanjay Walker, it was really hard to try and have those conversations with the police because... It's going to take a long time for our mob to start trusting police again. You know, they came in with the army in 2007 and yet they can't focus on trying to keep our kids at school, you know. So when it comes to a lot of issues that affect us, Black Lives do matter because we need a roof over our heads. We need to keep our kids out of jail. We need to keep our men and women safe from family and domestic violence. You know, we need to make sure there are proper food security for our people in remote communities and we need to close the gap on our health and our life expectancy. And the government is not going to do that alone unless they start listening to us and working generally with us. And I've had these decent conversations with Federal Minister Ken Wyatt. So, you know, I I believe that he is a good understanding person and, you know, I've got to take my hat off to him because he's the first Aboriginal person who's ever had this role and we should be having these genuine conversations with him. And he needs to start listening because in WA they were having all of those community closures. And, you know, suicide is also affecting Aboriginal people in WA, you know sacred site damages, all of that kind of stuff. So, yeah. I'd like to read some of the things I've written down, could take a note. The result of the intervention, how it affected my people at Yendamu. The intervention was sprung on us without warning. With no consultation, a lot of lies were told about our communities. Pedophile rings, violence, rivers of grog and dysfunctions. Five prime ministers later, they never took the lies back. The little bit of self-determination we had, they took from us. We no longer have a social council, local council, I beg your pardon. The council is run from Alice Springs. A big mob of white fellows came and they run everything for us. These outsiders don't talk Walbury and don't understand or respect our culture. 
It isn't easy for locals to get a job. Most repairs and building is done by outside contractors. Lots of new rules. Biggest lot of money ever spent on Yundamu was more than $7 million to build a new police station. We've got more police than ever and more people in jail than ever. The welfare mob keep taking children away. Don't respect our extended families. White bosses don't respect our elders. Our children see this and also lose respect in us. Everything is done in English. We have no say in running our own lives on our own land. It is like we are under occupation by a foreign power. What is the situation like in Yundamu today? Nothing much has changed. They keep tightening the screws. They're trying to turn us into white fellows. <laughs> we are proud Wildberry people. They have no right to control us like they do. We want our local council back. We want our houses back. We want police to respect us and stop wearing guns. We want self-determination and respect. We want to run our own lives again, our way. We want the government and the media to stop lying about us, lying to us. We want them to listen to us. Only then will we listen to them. Thank you. That's Walpree Elder Uncle Harry Jackamara Nelson. You also heard from Walpree Elder and Chair of the Walpree Justice Committee, Uncle Ned Jumper-Jimper Hargraves, founder of the Central Australian Aboriginal Strong Women's Alliance, Auntie Elaine Peckham, Central Australian Youth Leader, Amelia Pangada Kunath-Monks, Yolnu Elder and member of the NT Legislative Assembly, Yingya Mark Giula, and Barbara Shaw, who is a member of the Intervention Rollback Action Group. I'd also like to take this moment to acknowledge Sabine Karcher, who pulled together many forums on the NT intervention and provided a space for the voices that we've just heard. Sabine was a founding member of the Stop the Intervention Coalition in Redfern and sadly passed away recently. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing you know, respecting the world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt. And if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. First Nations women are 34 times more likely to be hospitalised by violence and subjected to three times as many incidents of sexual assault than other Australians. My next guest, Antoinette Braybrook, is the CEO of JIRA, an Aboriginal family violence legal service, and has been at the forefront of efforts to address these alarming trends. Right now, though, some music from Baker Boy. Side to side. 
new singer-songwriters Baker Boy and Uramal with Ride. This is Speaking Out. That's the key to it all, keeping connected to country. On ABC Radio. In 2002, the Aboriginal Family Violence Prevention and Legal Service in Victoria was established. Over the years, the organisation has grown and evolved and now has the name of JIRA. Antoinette Braybrook is the CEO, a position she's held since the service was established in 2002. Antoinette is also the co-chair of the Change the Record campaign, Australia's only national First Nations-led justice coalition of legal health and family violence prevention experts. Antoinette, welcome back to Speaking Out. Thanks, Larissa. It's um, great to be here. What can you tell us about JIRA? There's so much to tell about JIRA, but let me start with the most obvious thing is that we're an Aboriginal community-controlled organisation Everything that we do is about Aboriginal self-determination and importantly, we're a specialist organisation and our focus is on Aboriginal women and family violence. And I, I guess it's also important to just point out that while our focus is on Aboriginal women, we are not gender exclusive, but 98% of the people reaching out to us are women and children and we provide legal and non-legal frontline services including case management and counselling. We've got a Koori Women's Place which provides support to women and also delivers activities like earring making and basket weaving. We've got statewide reach. Our main office is in Melbourne and we've got eight regional offices uh, spread across Victoria, which makes us sound massive but we're not really that big. You know, those eight offices might just be occupied by one or two people. So that then brings me to my next point about juries that our board's just endorsed our strategic plan and we're really going to put a focus on establishing our Aboriginal Women's Centre in Melbourne for reach across Victoria and build bigger regional offices with more expanded services. The service, as I mentioned earlier, has been running since 2012 and you're coming up to your 20-year gala, which is quite a significant milestone. When you look back on that time and the evolution of, of the service, and as you pointed out, it's still evolving, but when you think back on all that's happened over that time, what have been some of the proudest moments for you or the most significant ones? I can't believe that the growth of JIRA. I mean, look, it hasn't come easy. There's been a lot of, you know, funding challenges along the way and, you know, many other things that have kept Aboriginal women's voices out of, you know, important conversations. But we've fought. So that's been a really um, big highlight for me. And, you know, I'm proud to say that JIRA's now got 101 positions funded across the state with 75 of those positions now filled. But that still doesn't mean that we're able to meet uh, the capacity, the demand for our services. I think, you know, we've worked really hard over those 20 years to build trust and confidence in what we do and to bring Aboriginal women along and so that Aboriginal women know that they'll get what they need from JIRA they won't be turned away, they won't um, receive a racist response, their identity, their culture will be respected and acknowledged and validated. And I, I think like, to see over that 20 years so many staff that actually return to JIRA, they might do, you know, a couple of years here or five years there with us and then just say, look, you know, I've got I really want to explore this other opportunity for myself, but we've got a revolving door. We have so many people come back. So that's really, you know, saying to me that we're a great place 
to work and that there are so many people who are committed to what we do. And I remember the day that the Victorian government announced that it would implement all of the recommendations of the Royal Commission and we celebrated that for once Aboriginal women felt heard and visible in such an important inquiry and, you know, our issues front and centre in that report and that led to an unprecedented investment into Jira's work, our frontline work and our early intervention prevention work. There are so many standout moments for me having been uh, the CEO for 20 years. I could just go on and on and on, Larissa, and I'm not sure if you want me to. (laughs) Well, there's some great highlights. And of course, we'd love to spend the whole show talking about just the highlights because we love the good news. But one thing I just want to pick up on that you said when you were describing JIRA, um, and that is that it's community controlled. And I wonder if you could share with us why that is so important in this space. Community control is that, you know, we've got Aboriginal members from across Victoria. We have an Aboriginal board. My chairperson is a woman, a really strong, proud Aboriginal woman. And we've been saying as Aboriginal people, as Aboriginal organisations, that our community-controlled organisations, our communities have the solutions and they need to be invested in. It's so important that Aboriginal self-determination is invested in because we see so, so much has failed with, you know, imposed government responses and um, investment into mainstream organisations. The federal government has come out with a new new focus on issues around violence against uh, women and children. And I wonder what your thoughts are on uh, whether this is the this policy is going in the right direction now. So, together with many other First Nations women, I've been strongly advocating for the need for a standalone, dedicated national plan to end violence against First Nations women and children. I mean, I've been, as you know, in this role for twenty years, and I've seen twelve years of national plans, mainstream plans that have consistently failed our people and our women especially, and we've become invisible under those mainstream strategies. And so it's, you know, great that uh, the new federal government has committed to develop that plan. It's great that we've got Linda Burney, um, an Aboriginal woman that's appointed as the Minister of Indigenous Australians, You know, still, I guess, we're disappointed that we didn't see such a a commitment into family violence prevention and legal services work by this government through the recent budget announcements. But we, you know, welcome that this government actually made a commitment to our national body and has provided funding to us for $3 million over three years. And that that's come after the previous government defunded our national body in an effort to rip Aboriginal women's voices out of the national agenda. Obviously, what happens at the federal level, as you're just describing, is critically important in terms of a national framework and those discussions and funding. But you've also mentioned you've worked with with inquiries with the Victorian government as well. And I was just wondering what your observation is on on what the state and territory responsibilities are in relation to this issue. Of course, there are uh, federal responsibilities and you've uh, been very active at the national sphere um, in terms of making sure First Nations voices are specifically heard. What are the sorts of issues that you have needed to really identify at the state level? Look, many of the issues that we talk about around the... Um, increasing incarceration uh, rates of our people, the high removal rates of Aboriginal children and so forth. Like um, they're all state-based issues, but they're issues that we need national leadership on. And so like in order to really get some change in these areas, we need all governments to come together to invest 
in those things. Like in my role as co-chair of Change the Record, you know, we are pushing pretty heavily for the um, ageing the age of criminal responsibility. And so we need, you know, all state and territory governments to come on board with that and we need national leadership on that with the high removal rates of our children, our National Family Violence Prevention and Legal Services uh, Forum has been calling for a custody notification referral scheme whereby if police are going to make a notification on Aboriginal children, then mum is referred immediately to a family violence prevention and legal service like JIRA because we know early um, access to legal representation will prevent child removal if mum has an advocate. Um, and that look, child protection is state-based, but we do need national leadership on, you know, that key issue. With respect to the high incarceration rates of our women, and we know that we're the fastest growing prison population in the country, we we also know that 90% of our women in prison have experienced family violence or sexual violence and 80% are mothers. And we also know that many are sitting on remand and unlikely to um, receive a custodial sentence. And so, like, something has to be done more than just with a state or territory response. We need national leadership on these things. Speaking of a national speaking of a national focus, what are you hoping the federal inquiry into missing and murdered First Nations women will achieve? I'm hopeful that this inquiry um, draws um, more attention to what we as First Nation women um, and organizations have been saying for a long time. You know, we've seen the same issues or we've advocated for many, many years around all of the same issues that I'm sure will come out through this inquiry in reports and in other inquiries and they just sit on this shelf gathering dust. I, you know, want to see that that there is a real focus put on the need for specialist Aboriginal community-controlled organisations like JIRA to ensure women's safety. JIRA is partnering with Change the Record to prepare a submission to this inquiry and we have been gathering some information and one of um, the things that we got from the coroner's report at uh, coroner's court in Victoria was that in the last 10 years there's been one Aboriginal woman that has, they've got this documented, that one Aboriginal woman has been murdered in the last 10 years but there's been also about 32 Aboriginal women that are documented as committing suicide. And we know that when they dug deep into their cases, family violence was prevalent in those cases. And I guess what I can say anecdotally from Jira's work is, you know, we suspect that some of our clients over the years have not died of a drug overdose, have not just, you know, um, died from a um, fall. We suspect that there's more to those cases. So I'm hoping to be able to bring those issues to the inquiry and hopefully, you know, draw more attention to the need to invest in specialist organisations for Aboriginal women. As we mentioned earlier, Jira coming up to celebrating 20 years with a wonderful gala and so much to celebrate in terms of the advocacy work that's been done and the way in which the service has really uh, worked to improve the lives of First Nations uh, families, not just women and children, but families. But I just wonder, um, it strikes me that that's no small achievement for you to be CEO of such a frontline organisation for such a long period of time. And um, I wonder if you can share with us what it is that's kept you going and kept you strong through all of these battles (laughs) and continuing battles. I just can't believe it's 20 years down the track, but then other times I feel like it is. <laughs> um, but, you know, I over the years it hasn't been easy for the organisation to get to where we are now. You know, there's been many challenges along the way and I've just been one of those people that, like, you know, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll take on that fight. So it's kind of kept me interested along the way as well. And there's never a dull moment 
at Jira. <laughs> and also like I draw my strength from the many Aboriginal women who come to Jira and who reach out to us or me, especially through social media or if I'm, you know, visiting communities and just, you know, really grateful for the work that we do. Speaking of our 20-year celebration coming up, we're a sellout now for this event and that's over 500 people attending. We've got Jess Malboy, we've got Barker and it's just going to be such a wonderful night and we've been able to secure sponsorship for Aboriginal women from across Victoria to attend but we are still seeking more sponsorship to support women to get there and I was in Sydney just last week and I received a FaceTime call from the women, um, our staff back at the office and they had me on a, a FaceTime call to one of the women who had come in to choose a an evening dress for the gala and she was just like, she was saying to me, I just feel like Cinderella and she just looks so beautiful. So that was made possible because a company donated over 200 evening dresses to Jira. So over the next few weeks leading up to the gala, we're going to have Aboriginal women coming in and choosing their dress and their shoes and their accessories for the gala night. So that's what, you know, that really makes me feel like I am where I belong. Oh, that's so lovely. I think these moments of celebration are really important. They're like important ceremonies. So I'm so glad that there's going to be a moment to reflect on all that's been achieved by by you and the staff and and the community with what's um, happened with Jira. Antoinette, congratulations on that achievement. And thank you so much for taking the time in your busy schedule with all the things you have on your plate to spend some time with us on speaking out, sharing this important work. Thanks so much, Larissa. I appreciate you letting us have a voice. That's CEO of Jira, Antoinette Braybrook. That's the show for this week. Join us again next week when we bring you more stories from Indigenous Australia. This episode of Speaking Out was produced by Jay McAllister and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au and find us on social media via ABC Indigenous. I'm Larissa Berendt.